and obviously the key moments when they played you know walk on walk on and it's 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 so powerful and you know i sort of uh it made me realize what what a great contribution jerry marsden had made one guest 10 songs 10 reasons music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love is a Cardiff-born TV programme maker who trained with the BBC World Service before moving to BBC Lighter Entertainment and then Current Affairs. He's made a wide range of programmes and documentaries for the BBC, ITV Central and Channel 4. With his own production company, Evans Wolf Media, formed almost 30 years ago with his wife, Rhonda Evans, he's produced programmes for the BBC, Channel 4, for schools, CBBC, CBBS and plenty more. Evansworth Media has been the recipient of several BAFTA and RTS awards. He's worked with the likes of Michael Parkinson, Terry Wogan and Robert Kilroy Silk for the BBC, Crystal Rose for ITV Central, as well as names such as Leonard Brezhnev, Ronald Reagan, Douglas Hurd, Lord Luca, Neil Kinnock, Norman Tebbit, the Royal Family, Roy Hattersley, John Major, Norman Fowler, Ken Clark, David Still, David Owen, all on a mercifully short stint as part of the production team for Spitting Image. His name is Harvey Wolf. he's my big brother, but hey, it's my show, and we'll hear from Harvey after his first choice, which is from the Kings. In the summertime, in the summertime, Welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. Thank you very much for inviting me, Andrew. Tell me uh, about your first choice on the afternoon from the Kinks. Well, Andrew, you'd be very interested to hear that you you are actually in this song. You make an appearance in the song. I'll tell you why, because this is one of the earliest pieces of music that I remember, and it, it uh, takes me back to August 1966, when I was staying with my brother David and my parents in a caravan in Porthcawl and uh, mum was very heavily pregnant with yours truly and uh, there's a great line in uh, Lazy Sunday Afternoon by the Kinks which is I've got a big fat mama (laughs) (laughs) and whenever that and that song was being played on the radio constantly at that time because it was uh, it was uh, you know it was a real hit and, of course, uh, we had a big fat mower because you were inside her, Andrew. So I always remember that. And the other reason I really like that record is because it, um, it's important for me in terms of one of my other real great loves in life, which is cricket. Because while we were listening to that record, uh, Ken Higgs and John Snow, England's number 10 and number 11, were making the biggest 10th wicket stand in Test history <laughs> for England in the fifth test against the West Indies. Oh. So it was a sort of perfect combination of all the good things in life, Andrew. Have you always been a music lover? I, I have always been a music lover, yes, I have. I, I, was, uh, I, mean, I think I may have told you on a previous show that I, I wasn't really part of the sort of um, uh, rock fandom that seemed to affect all my uh, colleagues. I didn't really like heavy metal music. But as soon as... Um, heavy metal music was replaced by people like David Bowie and Roxy Music, who we'll hear later. I really then came to love music much more. All sorts of music. And this question is not as daft as it sounds, because, as you just hinted at, um, 
about a week before I was born. You celebrated your tenth birthday, um, but was there music at home from mum and dad at that stage? I, I don't really recall a lot of music at home, to be honest. Uh, we 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 had a big sort of um, one of those old style sort of gramophone stroke uh, radiograms, and we used to listen to things like Force's Family Favorites with uh, Katie. Boyle, Boyle yeah. who I met actually later in life, and uh, I think Michael Aspel might have been on it, but we used to listen to things like that, and I do vaguely remember children's music, and I think my parents did quite like big band music, uh, but I don't remember music being, and we certainly didn't listen to classical music, although Scheherazade was always something that my <laughs> father talked about, but... Uh, no, I, I, it wasn't a great musical home, I don't think. Uh, you studied, just to jump a bit, you studied PPE at Oxford. Yes. Uh, so where did the interest uh, in the media come from? Um, well, I uh, was always interested in the music, in the media. I was always interested in broadcasting. But I was principally interested in the theatre. I used to do a lot of acting and directing. And I joined uh, the group at Lanover Hall down in Canton, uh, which is now Chapter, I think, yeah. or it's around there. So I went to that quite a lot, and I was always really interested in acting, and I acted at school, and I even directed a play at school, and continued that when I was at university. So it was always a question of whether or not I was going to go into the arts and the theatre, but then I, I became interested. And in fact, while I was at university... Um, I used to go and help out at Radio Oxford, working with Gary Richardson, who's still on Radio 4, presenting the sports news. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for, what, 50 years later. <laughs> and he was a great mentor to me. He used to let me read the rugby results and the football results. And I sort of got the bit then, and then went on to work in radio later to start with. Tell me about your second choice um, from uh, one of the new kids on the block, Beethoven. OK, so Beethoven, which you might think is an odd choice, but when I was uh, 16 in 1973, after I'd finished my O-levels, uh, I went on a hitchhiking holiday to France with three other Cardiff High School boys. Um, Michael Stevens, who went on to form a group, singing group called Cantabile, and Andy Morgan, and another guy called Simon Shearing. And Simon became eventually became a concert pianist i think he still lives in cardiff a very fine pianist and he was a fantastic pianist then and it was an amazing trip you can imagine two pairs of 16 year old boys hitchhiking around france and one of the most exciting things was whenever we went anywhere where there was a piano simon or maud as we used to call him if he's listening he won't forgive me for reminding him <laughs> that um, he used to sit down at the piano, and I remember I always used to say, play the pathetique, play the pathetique. And it was the first, it, it's, it has this really slow start and this incredibly dramatic crescendo, which I may not have given you the time codes for, Andrew. But anyway, it was the first piece of classical music, and it showed me how exciting and dramatic music could be. foot in the door come uh, with the BBC World Service? Uh, well, as I say, I was uh, keen to get in to the BBC in some way. 
And uh, the BBC had various training schemes that you could get into. Uh, and they, in declining uh, order of ease, they had a research assistant training scheme and a news training scheme. I uh, tried to get into one of those, but didn't get in. But they also had a studio manager scheme, which was basically working in radio studios, helping people to put programmes out. And because of my experience working at Radio Oxford, I applied to be a trainee studio manager, and I got on a BBC training course. So in 1979, I started on a six-month training course to, BBC, to be a BBC studio manager. And that was a sort of gateway then into the BBC, because once you're in the BBC, you can apply for attachments to work anywhere else, really. So that, that might answer my next question. For, for our family, particularly for uh, mum and dad, uh, working on uh, Parkinson for a series and a half was a big deal, seeing your name on the credits and being able to come to see some of the recordings. So did you apply for that, or were you approached? Um, I, what happened was that I... Um, well, obviously, it was a very exciting thing for me to get onto that, you know, as a sort of young kid from Cardiff mixing with all these people. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, as I say, once I'd been a studio manager for 18 months, I could apply for attachments. And this attachment came up to be a researcher on Parkinson. And um, I didn't I wasn't didn't really hope think that I had much chance of getting on it but I had remembered seeing a very famous Parkinson show the, the whole point about Parkinson was that um, at his best what he tried to do was to bring together people from different walks of life and get them to talk about common interests and I'd seen this show on Parkinson with a with a very famous actor called Ralph Richardson yeah and a a motorcyclist called Barry Sheen. Right. And Ralph Richardson rode a massive motorbike. Yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. And they spent a lot of time talking about motorbikes, which is not what you'd expect. And when they interviewed me for this job, I talked about how much I really loved that programme. And I, th I think, I thought, that the reason why I got the job was that they saw that I appreciated what the programme was all about. However, I think the real reason I got the job was because the producer t who I met a few years later told me that he couldn't believe when I walked in the room that he thought I was the spitting image of Michael Parkinson. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't <see laughs> I don't see it either. In fact, I met him actually much later where he said, oh, you just look so like Parky. <laughs> but I've never seen the resemblance. And may maybe that was the reason that got me the job. It wasn't any great performance in the interview you um you visited a lot of famous names um anyone stick out that you remember fondly for any particular reason um well uh i met diana ross uh which i'll, I'll talk about i mean i don't know if you want me to talk I've no got, we'll wait till the song yeah yeah, right, yeah yeah um i um george brown was somebody that i met who i who was fascinating who was the kind of number two under Harold Wilson right, yes. uh, and who had reached the stage in his life where uh, he'd kind of given up his family, he'd given up his religion, he'd left his marriage and, he, you know, he's a rather sad figure. But I, I had to go and talk to him. That was really fascinating. He was he was very well known as someone, as a politician, who couldn't handle his drink. And uh, he used to, you know, get drunk very easily and make uh, embarrassing comments. 
And um, when I went to see him at his place, all around the room, he had all these original cartoons portraying him <laughs> as, as a, a drunk. drunk. <laughs> yeah. So, he, I mean, he obviously quite enjoyed that. So I, I met him. Uh, Vera Lynn I met, right. uh, who was, uh, you thought was, was uh, yeah, quite nice. Another one of your music was my first love star, Susie Quattro. Uh, yes, I rem- yeah, yeah, I, I remember. That. She didn't remember. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> should have said she met Parky. You know, uh, should have remembered. Uh, I went. Yeah, who else? I can't remember. I now. remember one that you spoke about quite funny, uh, and I don't know whether I can't remember whether it was before the interview because you were a fan or, or after. Uh, but Michael York. Michael York. Yeah, well, he was the real. He was the real deal, wasn't he? At that time, he was the sort of young male good-looking actor he was very interesting yeah i went to see him one of the people that i most enjoyed meeting was a an american film director called john houston i know yeah. who's the father of angelica houston he was he was really interesting you know it was it, the thing was what was fast, fantastic about the job was that in those days it was quite an important role essentially they took on people and they said right we've booked diana ross for saturday week and our job was to go and do interview them before they came on the show Mm. and write it up much like you might write an article or an essay of what you think would be a good interview and with about a dozen questions and the trick was always to try and get parky to do the interview that you suggested you know sometimes he'd you know if it was like uh I remember once when uh, I, the very first person they sent me to was Arthur Marshall. I don't you, know. You brought your recording home to, to Cardiff. Did I? Yeah. Oh well, <laughs> Arthur Marshall, who uh, maybe m- m- only your older listeners might remember, but he was a sort of rather irritating, I thought. But he used to be on <laughs> Call My Bluff, and he was a sort of very camp uh, commentator, I suppose, and raconteur. And I was expected to go and see him and put together some interview about full of witticisms and everything. And I discovered that he'd been at Cambridge at the same time as the as Guy Burgess, one of the Cambridge spies. So I came back writing up an interview all about spying in Cambridge, and that was immediately put on the uh, yeah. I mean, the other person I met who was really one of the most fascinating people I met was Frankie Howard. Right, I didn't know. Yeah, Frankie Howard who I'm, you know, who I met without his wig, actually, right. which was unusual. But um, he was like sort of the classic uh, depressed clown before, he, you know, before he went on stage yeah. and sort of turned it on. But that was that was really fascinating. And uh, Dennis Compton, an, mm. uh, the cricketer, who offered me a large scotch before 10 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the one I remember, and it's a bit, I can't remember his name, and he's a folk singer, comedian. Oh, Mike Harding. Mike Harding. Yeah. Didn't you tell us the story? Because I think at that stage, you were looking at, at moving, going to Manchester, working with Spitty Image. And did he not say to you, if you're looking for someone to live, give me a call, I'll help you out? Uh, or am I remembering that totally wrong? He might have said that. I do remember that I, I'm, I worked with Alan Parker once, the film director. Uh-huh. And he he did say to me once, if you ever want to work in the movies, give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) And I did write to him, but he didn't give me a job. (laughs) My, um, obviously we as a family used to go and see a lot of shows, shows that you weren't involved with. 
but my my greatest memory actually was because uh, we go into the, the green room after was how nice and friendly to mum and dad Jimmy Tarbo was really? we just had time talking about what he knew about Cardiff I mean we were fans anyway but how did you get to had, meet Jimmy Tarbo how did they he, get... was, he was on that show whichever the, one of the shows we went to see what we, Parkinson's yeah oh right we I only, see we, we, could, we could only go to shows that you weren't involved with is that right? Yeah, I never remember going to one of the involved in it. Tarby was on one, and Bruce right. was on the same one. That's I mean. interesting. And he was really friendly. Yeah, and had time, and wasn't there was no. Oh, that's interesting. I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah. Now, listen. Since I've been with Radio Glen Morgan, you've introduced me to a couple of uh, recording artists whose music I knew, but not as much as I thought. Yes. And they both appear in your list. Uh, with the first one here, tell me about your second choice from Roxy Music. Okay, so, um, uh, as I said, I wasn't really into heavy metal rock, but I, I, um, when I was about uh, 16 or 17, partly through the work at Lanover Hall, I met a couple of fantastic art, arty people who worked on adventure playgrounds down in Ely and Splot in Cardiff during the summer holidays, helping, you know, finding and working with local kids. And they were they were besotted with Roxy Music, and the day Roxy Music's first album came out, they, they introduced me to it, and I was hooked for life. And Roxy Music did play at the old Capitol Cinema in Cardiff, and that was, I think, the first concert I ever went to. Uh, I wasn't a great concert go, but I went to see Roxy Music live at the Capitol Cinema, and I remember going in there, and the band came on, and it was really disappointing, because there was no Brian Ferry... Right. And we were really frustrated and we thought, you know, and then, then the music started up of the one you're going to play, which is called Do the Strand, I think. Mm. And um, Brian Ferry uh, lasso trapezed in on a rope wearing a leopard skin <laughs> suit with a great whip. And he, he um, oh, it was a lasso, actually. It was a lasso, and he lassoed this thing as he landed on stage, and they went straight in to do the strand. And it, I can honestly say it was one of the most exciting moments of my life. <laughs> I mentioned Spitting Image earlier. You also worked on a game show with Terry Wogan, and I've said. Um, but who and um, what was the Crystal May show? Crystal Rose, I beg your pardon. <clears throat> the Crystal Rose Show. The Crystal Rose Show was Britain's first uh, multiracial talk show. So um, we know about movements in television, like reality television, and uh, so. But, but one of the things that really took off back in the uh, in the seventies was British versions of American audience participation talk shows and uh i was working in london uh for a production company and carlton which owned the fran the itv franchise for london uh wanted to work with a uh, a woman called crystal rose uh i think crystal was of nigerian descent actually and w what became britain's first bame we called it black then but bame presenter and uh i was the editor of it and the idea was to get audiences that were mixed audiences to talk about issues that affected i mean now if you're in london london's one of those one of the most mixed cities in 
in the world really uh and but and at that time it still was quite mixed but it hadn't really taken off taken off amongst the young communities in that way and that show was really caught and we're trying to get in on that and uh, i got to work with crystal and um they sent us off to america to go and sit in the talk shows and talk to the presenters so we went to meet oprah winfrey and we sat in geraldo and we sat in donahue and uh experienced the vibes of all these shows and looked at how they got their audiences whipped up and all that sort of stuff you know and um it was it was it was good fun at the time uh so that's what crystal rose was yeah and and did it work here um, I think it was a popular show. It ran for about two series, and then I think maybe Carlton lost their franchise. Right. Um, you know, uh, I think that... Uh, I think it worked. I mean, talk shows uh, sink or swim on the strength of their presenters, mm. really. And uh, I think one of the things that... that uh, commi- unless you've got someone who's an incredibly successful, bankable hit the TV company's going on to the next one, really. So, sorry, to step back a bit, because I didn't know you'd done that, what, uh, did you get to speak with Oprah Winfrey? Because I yes. imagine you learned a lot from her for that show. Um, well, we met her. We we, we uh, met her after the show, actually. Crystal was very excited at the prospect of meeting Oprah Winfrey, and uh, I think was led to believe that the meeting had been set up months in advance, but... Uh, to a sort of cynical old TV producer like me, waiting in the line to shake hands with opera, I could see her producer saying into her, This is Crystal Rose, she's got a show on in the BBC, <laughs> and you're being British, you know, and she wants to say hello. So uh, then we got to say hello, and uh, she was looking at me and looking at Crystal, and, you know. The thing with Crystal was that she, our, our whole purpose of going to these shows was to watch mm. what was happening. But, Crystal really liked talking, so whenever we got in the show, she would be the first to put her hand up to say something. <laughs> and they also get they used to get very excited at the fact that there was effectively an English accent speaking on their American <laughs> talk shows. Who is uh, Nelja Baritonia? Okay, so Nelja Baritonia. So this this goes on to the next one. So when I was a studio and when I became a studio manager working at World Service, it was a very exciting job because you were working with people from all over the world who are putting uh, you may not know this but world service is just one of the one of the channels that the bbc external services put out and there are loads of channels in other languages i think there were maybe 40 different languages at the time and a number of those languages were eastern european sending out the bbc's message in countries that were part of the soviet bloc Uh, And we would help these fantastic people to read the news or put their programme out. And I worked with a lot of great people on those programmes. But one of the most um, nerve-wracking programmes was something called the Fin Pops. And in those days, um, we didn't have... uh, We didn't play music digitally. It was done on a turntable. And the BBC World Service, External Service, had, had... very old and outdated turntables where you press the button and it started one and a half seconds later (laughs) and the thin pops had prided itself on being the most fast-moving show at the bbc so 
you, the, the presenters would talk in Finnish, bang, the music would come in, and you had to be reading the script like this in Finnish and work out when one and a half seconds was before the end of the paragraph, <laughs> so you press the button and got the music in. Now, Nelja Baritonia is just one of the kinds of pieces of music that we used to play on those programmes, but if you imagine someone speaking very fast in Finnish, and a, and a young English lad who knew nothing at all about Finnish having to get this record in live. Oh, the other thing I should say, it was live. So you couldn't re-edit it afterwards. And you had to bash that record in live the moment he finished the Finnish word. And it would be something like this. <laughs> Did I press the button quick enough? <laughs> that was very exciting, Andrew. Uh, it was, actually. <laughs> reminded me of all those years ago. Uh, your next choice, Harvey, is from the Liverpool music scene, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yes. So, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of these pieces of music, um, uh, I, I, sort of, I've come across in more than one way. You know, it's a bit like the kinks and, uh, uh, you know, first introduction to music and cricket. And Jerry Marsden... Uh, who's the Jerry and Jerry and the Pacemakers? I had two, uh, a sort of two moments in my career, really, that, that are memorable. Um, the, the first was slightly depressing because um, I, I went, I worked at the BBC, and then I went to work for Granada in Manchester uh, on various programmes at Granada, and I was also based in Liverpool. And I used to work on a programme called Live from Two, and Two was a studio, Studio Two. Yeah. And the, the programme prided itself on being able to fly people up from London to be on this programme in the afternoon. It was just a regional lockdown. But as you, but as you can imagine, uh, it was quite a risky undertaking. The programme was live and sometimes people didn't make the flights or the flights were delayed. So they would always have someone on standby paying 75 quid and they would come on the show if the person didn't turn up. And, and Jerry Marsden was frequently the person who would be on standby <laughs> waiting to come on the show and did indeed come on the show on at least two occasions, I recall, talking about Jerry and the Pacemakers. But it always felt to me a bit of a sad come down yeah. for someone <laughs> to just be sitting there waiting to come on the show. But Being paid a retainer. Being paid a, <laughs> being paid a retainer of 75 quid, you know, I suppose the equivalent of a doctor on call, really. Yeah. But... Um, to give Jerry and his due, I, I, I never really appreciated the importance of to to Liverpool, and I really appreciated it in the sort of sometime later when I was working on uh, the BBC on Breakfast Time as a, a film director, and I used to go out and make films about news stories, a bit like a sort of uh, someone writing a, a colour feature for a newspaper. And I used to work. I worked with Bill Turnbull then, who uh, who went on to do great things. And came into our kitchen at home. Oh uh, yeah, he, he did, did he? All the oh, days right, of mobile, right. he rushed in to use the phone. But I also used to uh, worked with uh, Mark Easton, who's still the BBC's Home Affairs correspondent. And one of the things we were sent to cover was the Hillsborough disaster. Right. And uh, I always remember going out like a day or two after the the you know, the disaster after what the terrible things that happened to the football match and going up 
into this area near Runcorn in Lancashire, where I think five or six people had died in the same street. And Mark's background was as a journalist, you know, and I, I was, you know, I, did, I wasn't really a hard-bitten journalist. But basically our brief was to, to talk to the families, you know. And I was, I was slightly uncomfortable about the idea of going out and finding families and talking to them, you know. But what, what was incredible to me was how much people wanted to talk. You know, and people were sending us from one house to the other and people wanted to open up. And it was, you know, it was incredibly moving for, obviously for them, but also for us. I think it was one of the most emotional things I'd done. And then, um, you know, at the time, the whole of the gates at Anfield were covered with flowers and everything. And then there was a service inside Anfield that I then covered uh, as part of breakfast time. And obviously the key moments when they played, you know, walk on, walk on. And it's, it's, it's so powerful. And, you know, I sort of, uh, it made me realise what, what a great contribution Jerry Marsden had made to the town of Liverpool uh, that belied his standby appearances on Live From mm-hmm. Two, really. Sort of, it came full circle. Yeah. Listening to another edition of Radio Good Morgan's Music was my first love, with TV producer Harvey Wolf choosing ten of his favourite tracks. To find out how you can give blood, visit welshblood.org.uk. If giving is in your blood, please help. Diana Ross, yes. Well, Diana Ross was uh, one of the first people whose records I ever bought, actually. My, uh, well, first, I bought Baby Love by the Supremes. And little did I know that a young lad from Roth Park in Cardiff would one day have to go and visit Diana Ross and interview her for her appearance on the, on the Parkinson show. And it was at some posh hotel, probably the Dorchester on Park Lane in London, and it was just about the biggest suite of hotel rooms I've ever mm. seen in my life. And the whole place was full, of essentially, of these big uh, black security guys who didn't trust me at all. <laughs> uh, and uh, But it was very exciting. And then when she came on the show, I had to write the script, actually. W- one of the things we had to do as researchers was, was to write Parky's script. Yeah. Uh, which, again, uh, you hoped he wouldn't change. And at the time, uh, there was a whisper in the press that Diana Ross had been paid more for the album. It was a bit later in her career, actually, but had been paid more than anyone else for the album. You know, it was $6 million or something like that. So I wrote it into the script, and she was furious that anybody should... (laughs) reveal how much money she was actually paid in those days people didn't talk about money you know so but it was very very exciting yeah and uh, obviously i think she's brilliant in that song a lot better than sadly i think her semi uh, well what i was going to say was her her semi um mimed appearance at the jubilee or the the platinum, what is it? it the, was Jubilee? the platinum jubilee, the and platinum then jubilee. yeah. And I didn't hear the Glastonbury one, but um, you know, so what, what was the how long between meeting and going and interviewing Diana Ross 
three days. Three, no, it was three, basically you'd go and see them. Be, I don't know. I asked the question a, because she's from Morocco, so she wouldn't have come over twice. Uh, no, I mean they're in town. Yeah. So uh, the, you know the researcher, they always make an appointment for the researcher to see them. I mean now. I have to say, in recent years, these talk shows have just been about plugging things, haven't they? Yeah. So, but then it wasn't so much plugging things; it was about you know to, trying to do. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't get a big star unless they were plugging something. But yeah. it was about uh, trying to get something interesting in the interview. But generally, you'd go and see them, you'd tape it, and you'd write it up within twenty-four hours, and then you'd have a meeting with Parky. And he, you generally, Parky always took us out for lunch. We, but he used to do the show on Saturday, and yeah. he used to show on Wednesday as well. Yeah. And on Wednesday, he'd take everyone out for fish and chip, for fish and chips, which was his favourite yeah. uh, meal. Good old Yorkshireman. Yeah, good old Yorkshireman. Yeah. So uh, you'd do the interview. You, you'd sit down with him for 45 minutes where you'd go through the interview, and he'd write it up and stuff. And then you'd go and have fish and chips. And then you'd get down to the studio, and then you were responsible for your, um, your person all evening. Yeah. I remember I was on once with uh, Richard, on this show, I was with, who's that woman, I can't remember what her name was, she was an American actress who was in, uh, you know that famous film of that tower block coming, being destroyed by fire? Oh, the Tower Inferno? Yeah, what was the name of the American actress who was in it? Uh -oh. No, I did not Shelley Winters. Yeah, Shelley Winters, she was one of the person I had to see, right. and... She was on, she was, I mean, I say they weren't plugging, she was plugging the film. And Richard Stilgo was on, if you remember Richard yeah, Stilgo. Yeah, yeah. And huh. Shirley Winters took a particular li dislike to Richard <laughs> Stilgo, who was on before her. And she kept saying to me, get him off, get him off, he's ruining my little switched off before I get on. <laughs> Is that the show where I remember her getting quite emotional about talking about hearing the shots that killed John Lennon. I don't know whether... Uh, that maybe that was. I don't remember. I don't remember it from that show, but, yeah, that was funny. So, moving on... Yes. Um, how did the formation of what became Evansworth Media come about? Because it was at a time uh, when a lot of TV channels were starting to employ services of independent production. Well, Channel 4, really. Channel 4 was the... I mean, actually, it was well before Evansworth Media started, but Channel 4 only worked with independent production companies yeah. and um what happened it actually wasn't me that started the company or at least it was me that started it but it was set up to enable Rhonda, my wife to make a documentary about the house of lords mm -hmm. she uh she she was she got access to make a fly on the wall film in the house of lords it was the first ever film that that had been made in the house of lords with genuine fly on the wall access to what went on there and uh, although she'd been working on 40 Minutes at the BBC, the BBC didn't want to do it. And she said, right then, let's go to Channel 4. And uh, Channel 4 were really keen on the programme. And we set up the, our production company to make that first film back in 1991. And was there a long-term plan, or was it just for that film? Well, I think the thing is that if you... Financially... Uh, it was always better that you made the programmes yourself because, I mean, firstly, uh, it was much more profitable. You ran the budget, you managed the budget, you hired and fired people. I mean, it's a, it, it was and always has been a precarious existence because you're only as good as your last idea. But if, you were, if you're getting commissions, you, 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 know, you, you are much better off 
running your own company and hiring freelancers. And for Rhonda and me, who were, you know, both working, both in the industry, it was, it was, you know, it became, you know, that's really what we ran our our lives and our family on for 30 years. And can you get to a stage when you've established yourself and, and you've made programmes and you've got money in the bank, obviously you have an idea and you try and sell it to a, a, a company, but to a TV company, but can you be in a position where you can make the programme first and then go and sell it? We, we, were, we were never in that position. No. Um, some people do that. Some 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 people know that someone will buy it but i don't think people often did that no it would uh, I, be precarious it would be very precarious i mean i think these days uh certain certainly with some big budget productions the main broadcaster won't pay the whole budget right. so then you've got to go and raise more money from elsewhere in order to be able to do it and uh, that that can be difficult so you know a, a, a you know, if you see uh, when they've put films on the BBC, the BBC might pay 30, 25% of that film. And then, you, you know, part of the job of being an independent producer, as I was, is to raise money from elsewhere. I mean, mo we, we didn't, most of our stuff was fairly low budget. And, uh, you know, after a while, we started really working in the education sector. So it was even lower budget. So you were very, you're very reliant on broadcasters to the bbc channel four to to pay your budget in full next up harvey your seventh choice and it's the other artist who i've played a lot on the night train ever since you asked me to play this particular track nina simone and mississippi goddamn yes mississippi goddamn nina simone it's a very it's a fantastic song this is a very angry song about how long uh it was taking to introduce civil rights in america and uh, he, I, I'm playing this for two reasons, really, because w w when you when you are an independent producer, one of the points about one of the things about being a TV producer is that you very quickly have to become an expert on everything, just as you had to be an expert on Diana Ross or Shelley Winters. When you make a program, you become an expert on it. And I found myself uh, in the sort of 90s as the editor of a new Channel 4 current affairs programme called The Black Bag. Uh, and my brief was to take on a, a group of uh, BAME producers and researchers. One of the problems was that, that although Channel 4 was very committed to minority programming, there were very few BAME, black and ethnic minority producers and directors out there and for some reason the production company i was working in was working with the commissioning editor to try and recruit more people so the company was commissioned to make the program and i found myself the editor of this program taking on about a dozen people many of whom have gone on to be very prominent people in the media industry but i found myself immersed in that world mm. and the other reason i'm playing this song is that america is a very different country to the US. And I talked a little bit before about going abroad with Crystal Rose. Sorry, America is a different place to the US. It's a very different... Sorry, to Britain. Ah, right. And it's a much more racist country than yeah. Britain, I believe. Uh, and w I always remember when I got to America, um, Crystal and I, we, we 
got into our hotel and we went out for something to eat and we were walking through manhattan to find a restaurant and several people came up and made really horrible racist remarks either black people having a go at her for being with me or white people having a go at me for being with her and just walking along the road you know we we weren't going out with each other we were just working together and it just really brought it home to me you know how much work there was still to do in america in in the 90s well that's just the trouble washing the windows picking the Nothing but rotten, too damn lazy, thinking's crazy. You're listening to music. It was my first love with Cardiff-born TV programme maker Harvey Wolf, choosing ten of his favourite songs. Burning primary, the nominees are... Learning primary. Children of World War Two. One night, when everyone was asleep... A bomb found the house next door. How did you feel in the morning when you woke up and you realised the bomb had hit the house? I realised something very serious had happened and I could hear this, a lot of shouting. The people next door, where six people had been killed, had stood no chance. And the BAFTA goes to... Children of World War II, Harvey Wolf, Dominic Sands and Tim Dock. Can I just say thank you very much to Katie Jones for having the confidence in us for our first commission and I'd also like to say what was really exciting about this series was bringing together some very traditional programme making techniques of hearing older people telling their stories and as you will have seen some very modern animations and it shows I think to some of us older people in TV that there's still room for traditional programme making thank you very much indeed and the nominees just a few drinks it's like everything you imagine it to be like when you're absolutely drunk off your face and it's not a nice thing at all. It was a nightmare because the whole, the whole party was just spinning around my head. The liver can only break down one unit per hour. And the BAFTA goes to just a few drinks. Harvey Wolf, Dominic Sand and Tristan Anderson. I just want to say thank you very much. The one line we have written this evening is that you wait 22 years for a BAFTA and you win two in 20 minutes. So it's a brilliant night for us tonight, and thank you. So, Evans Wolf Media, um, you've won How a number... embarrassing. <laughs> you've won a number of awards, including two BAFTAs that we just heard, and I want to talk about one of those BAFTA-winning programmes in particular, and that's Children of World War II. must have been both interesting and emotional for those taking part and those who made it um well it it was certainly very interesting to make it uh i mean an awful lot of work went into it really because we had to find stories three incredibly strong stories uh of uh survivors of world war ii who had stories to tell uh about being a child i mean essentially children of world war ii uh put together uh older people who'd been children Mm. during the second world war with their grandchildren or children they knew who were the same age today and they basically talked about experiences as children so casting was absolutely crucial we had to find um uh people in their 70s 80s 
even 90s, who could still talk and were articulate and remembered well what happened. But they also had to have a granddaughter or a great-granddaughter or son or know a young person. And then we had to make a programme where it looked like the relationship was authentic and the young person was genuinely asking questions of the older person. So, I mean, it was a fantastic programme to make because we mixed all that with archive and it really got you, give, gave you a strong ser- sense of what it was like growing up. But actually, it's quite interesting you say it must have been very emotional. Actually... For for a seven-year-old or a six-year-old, the war was incredibly exciting, actually. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was like going out to your own your own fun fair. I mean, one of, one of the, the guys yeah. says, you know, Alan said, you know, every night it was like a sort of show, you know, and you'd go out the next day and you'd be looking around and finding bits of shrapnel. You know, it was really exciting. I mean, obviously, it was sometimes tragic. Mm. Uh, and... But... As, as a young person, what do you remember? You remember the exciting parts of it. Yeah. So, you know, it was a great programme to do. And, um, you know, I, I, I was pleased it won the... I was more pleased that that one won the award because I, I think that it, it's like a lot of programmes that are deceptively simple when you watch them. Mm. They do take a huge amount of work. And, of course, Betty, Betty Campbell was in that programme, who uh, is from Cardiff. She was one of the people... Yes that we chose and uh so some of that filming took place in cardiff uh classic bit of wall of sand tell me about your next choice um okay so dadu ron ron okay so i i did i did win two baftas on the same night for for education programs that was really very exciting um but another award we we won was the something called the japan prize the japan prize is the sort of oscars of education programs and um, what happens is that they send all these tapes off and this jury gets together in Tokyo, uh, all uh, paid for by NHK, which, is the na- which has its own educational challenge, uh, channel in Japan. And they all deliberate and they all make a decision. And about three, days after they, three or four days after they make the decision, they, they have essentially a television programme which goes out on the channel and presents the award. And so... So one Sunday afternoon, I was at home, can't remember what I was doing, when the phone rang and my commissioning editor from the Channel 4 said to me, Harvey, congratulations, this is John, you've won the Japan Prize, can you be in Tokyo on Wednesday? <laughs> so I, I basically, three days later, I was flown out first class by Japanese Airways and three days later, I found myself on a TV show in Tokyo, being interviewed by an incredibly glamorous uh, Japanese host about this programme I'd produced. Uh, so that was, that was really genuinely exciting. I was in Tokyo for 36 hours. But actually, one of the most exciting things was that after the show, I went out with uh, a handful of other British people there. We went to a Japanese karaoke bar <laughs> <laughs> where oh, I, I, did, I did my <laughs> rendition of Dadu Ron Ron. But before you play it, I must say that Dadu Ron Ron has got another important part in my life. It's the only time I've ever been thrown out of a pub. <laughs> <laughs> is repeatedly playing Dadu Ron Ron on the uh, jukebox and singing it at the top of my voice when I was a student. When we were growing up, 
Uh, one of our cousins, who, although no longer with us, would love a name check, so that's Monty Joseph. Right. Um, was always convinced uh, that you'd be Prime Minister. So, having read uh, PPE University, was there ever any serious political ambition? Uh I, I did think about it at one time. I was I was invel involved with the Labour Club uh, in Oxford, but I I um, and you know have have been involved in the Labour Party now and again at various times, mainly as the treasurer actually rather mm. than a representative. But um, no, I, I think I was more interested in being involved in the media than I was in politics. To be honest with you, I think I was very into debating as a teenager, and I, I think people might have thought that I was going to do that. But I, I, in the end, I think it's a bit of a slog going into politics, really. Yeah. And I think you know most people who go into politics end their careers not at a time of their own choosing, and you know you stand in elections, and um, often you don't win. But I mean, I have, interestingly, I was thinking to myself the other day, I have met about four or five prime ministers in my time, actually, because when I when I, I was a 16 year old in the Labour Party in Cardiff and I worked for Jim Callaghan, uh, I think in the 1974 election, yeah. when interestingly, I think he was standing against Ted Dexter, the cricketer, huh. who was representing the Tory party. So politicians have always fascinated me and I still am fascinated by politics. Uh, but uh, I don't regret not going in that direction. Tell me about uh, your penultimate choice. So, Tony, Tony Neodando, Eland Gihera. So, one of the great, uh, I mean, you know, over the years, I've been very lucky uh, to to be in in the media and to meet lots of people. But I think one of the, one of the greatest privileges is has been to be able to work abroad. And, um, you know, I've, I've been to lots of different countries for work. Uh, I've been to India at least 10 times and I, I spent a long time making films uh, to try and help Indian teachers improve education in the country. And I went to America a couple of times to work and I've been over Europe and the Middle East. Uh, but the, I think one of the most exciting things was going to Kenya. Uh, that we made a film, uh, Rhonda, my wife, made the film, actually, but I had to go out and set it up. And it was essentially in a in a part of Kenya, in a Kenya's, I think, third town called Kasumu, right over in the west, near the border with Uganda. And it was in a school there, and I met a lot of people, and, and actually one of the teachers at the school, who I got to know really well, died in a in a crash. And uh, we, Evans Wolf, ended up paying for his, you know, contributing to his children's education for several years afterwards, actually. But uh, arriving in Kenya in a, in a small airport in that kind of atmosphere and that heat and that red clay, you know, and hippos all around and, you know, we, it was an incredible experience, really. And this song was always on when I was in uh, in Kasumu, and I bought uh, I bought the tape and brought it back. And it's uh, I don't actually know what what it means, but it's essentially a, a Kenyan love song. And this guy was a uh, really popular amongst the community. Tony Niadando, Izanda Hihera. <laughs> Your 
final choice, Harvey, on this edition of Music Was My First Love, is a really great track from the Shawdettes. Yes, yes. Is that how you pronounce it? Is it the Shawdettes or the Cordettes? I don't know what it is, I actually. But so I just play them. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> so, um, yes, i tell you why I... Uh, uh, the thing is, okay, so you... you um, you, you you have a job you do your job if you're lucky it's a job that you enjoy and you do it for 30 or 40 years but there are other things that happen in your life as well uh, and i'm lucky enough to have two uh lovely daughters who i'm very proud of who are 20 27 and i think what then becomes important to you rather than the job that you do and 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 you know whether you enjoy it and the things that you wrestle over is you want you 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 begin to think about your children's lives and obviously you want your children to be settled and uh, i'm conscious of the fact that for my daughters as for many young women in their 20s and 30s one of the hardest things in life at the moment is finding a partner (laughs) (laughs) and it's something that preoccupies them and uh they go through men and uh you know they're desperately trying to find someone so this song makes me think how keen i am for them to find the right person and to be settled are you are you (laughs) so hold that so they're not living at home Uh, Um, they're not living at home now (laughs) they're on their way but you know are you optimistic about the future of British TV making and in particular current affairs? Um, am I optimistic? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, let me put the, the, let me ask you my next question then. Yes. and answer it together. Is there still a place for public service broadcasting? Yes, there's the definitely because it's come under a lot of criticism in recent years. Yes, time. well, I think I think the BBC has had some problems really, and. Um, it's. I feel desperately sorry for the BBC because it's. 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 It's easy to attack. It's so easy to attack, and everybody wants to attack the BBC and find fault with it. And people say that the BBC is too pusillanimous and doesn't come down on one side or the other. And then people attack the BBC for being biased in one direction or another. And it's always having to guide this this course, not upset people, but to still be respected as this kind of international source of the very best journalism and it's really tough and uh you know now it's also being attacked for paying its presenters too much money and because other people are prepared to pay high quality presenters money many of them are leaving so obviously you've seen people from newsnight leave and then there's all the criticism of panorama you know of the jimmy savile affair and the the princess diana Diana interview so it's very tough and and you know you can't really how anybody can expect the bbc to maintain those those high standards when it's continually on the defensive but on the other hand i think very good um journalism is being carried out elsewhere you know i think channel 4 news is is probably the best news program that there is um and you know i think i think global which is the service that andrew mars gone to and emily maitlis and people like that which will soon be a tv service i think and a lot of a lot of their programs uh, you know are partly tv you know i think i think they are providing a very good sum so i think the the multiplicity of news outlets is a good thing but i think you know we need to be careful that we're not too critical of news organizations and especially the bbc because otherwise they'll have nowhere to go 
Is there one part of your professional career uh, that you're most proud of above all else? Um, uh, well, I'm proud of winning the BAFTAs for children's television, really. And I think it's, it's I think that um, after having worked in mainstream broadcasting for about half my career, I then moved more into into education. And in, in, the, in the last 10 years or so, I've been really working in the educational realm and I've made programmes for CBBS and CBBC. And uh, I think we made we made a lovely series for um, CBBS in which we uh, met young children from all over the world and looked at their daily lives, and that won the viewers and listeners uh, children's series of the year. You know, so I'm very proud of actually using my skills to make high quality program for children and young people, uh, and I think that's been a, a great contribution to education really and that that is another area that's uh, becoming an endangered species within broadcasting because of budgets but you know i think that's the area i look back on and i'm pleased i've done it really and having almost semi-retired uh what's the future for you uh well oh the future well i'm working i am working as a consultant with the open university at the moment right. so I, I i work with academics to help them to to um make films as part of their courses but uh, the future for me and, well, Rhonda, well, I think Rhonda's about to do a PhD. And um, I'm quite keen to try and write something in the next couple of years. But I don't think we're going to have a quiet retirement. We're going to be travelling a lot. And uh, we want to do one more thing in our lives. Uh, we're not quite sure what it is, but we're going to do something. And when you say write, you mean a novel write? I don't, I don't think it'll be a novel, but I would, I would like to do a bit. I haven't done much writing, but when I do write stuff, uh, I enjoy it, and I've never really given that time. I, I don't want to write novels because I think it's a bit self-indulgent, but I would like to... I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment. I'm, write, I'm actually doing some script writing at the moment for um, uh, some little dramas, so I'm, I don't know. I'm just exploring options. Mr. Sandman Bring me a dream bum, 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 bum. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where TV producer Harvey Wolf has been choosing 10 of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolf, and join me again soon when someone else chooses 10 of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future.